Hello again, church. If you've got a Bible, why don't you open it up to Luke 10? That's where we'll be today. If you, if you don't have a Bible with you, we've got some Bibles back there on the stand that you are welcome to take. If you're our guest, just take one of those Bibles as a gift to you. We're going to be in Luke 10 this morning. And in addition, if you don't have a Bible and you don't want to grab one, it'll be on the, the screen behind me. Luke's in the New Testament. So if you open up to the table of contents, it starts with the Old Testament. And then about three quarters of the way through, it starts the New Testament. Luke is the third book after Matthew and Mark. So if you want to go to Luke chapter 10 today, I'd invite you to do that. Can we start in prayer as we begin this morning? Holy God, we are so thankful to be in your presence. We're thankful that where two or three are gathered, there you are. And we look for you this morning, God, in this place. God, we pray that from these ancient words, words that we've heard many, many times, that you may speak a new word to us this morning, that you may speak your gospel directly into our hearts this morning. And I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's pick up in Luke 10, starting at verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, what's written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. And so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Have you seen this chart? It's called the the neighborhood chart. What you're supposed to do here is you're supposed to place yourself in that middle square and then ask yourself if you can name your eight closest neighbors, okay, the eight people who live closest to you. Can you put their names up there, any important information about them, family members like that? Can you, can you do that? For the record, I can't. And um, last night I got an email from a guy in my, my neighborhood who was putting together an email list serve for the whole neighborhood so we could stay in contact with each other, get to know each other. And he, he said he was going to throw a potluck when it got a little bit warmer on the block. And that really annoyed me because I want him to know I'm the minister on this block. <laughs> You're not going to out-Christian me on my own block. Uh, Jab and Becky Mesa, our missionaries from Papua New Guinea, they were here a few weeks ago. And they were staying with Wayne and Martha Simpson Highland members, and kind of across the street from the church, not far from here in a great little neighborhood. And I picked uh, Jab and Becky up for lunch one day, and, for staff lunch. We were taking them to eat with the rest of the staff. And when I picked them up, Jab said, uh, Eric, I'm thinking about going for a walk in the neighborhood after lunch. Can I do that? I was like, yeah, sure. You can do that. And he said, but I don't see anyone else walking. Are you sure it's okay? And in, in Papua New Guinea, people walk everywhere. I was like, yeah, 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 that's, that's fine. But then at lunch, it was still bothering him. And it was obvious because he brings it up again. And Chris said, well, we've got this great park called Shelby Farms. And people drive there and, and they walk there. It's beautiful. And Jab said, you mean people drive to walk? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, that's, that's basically, basically it. And then I'll never forget, he looks at us with this great concern in his eyes, and he says, then how does anyone know their neighbor? How does anyone know their neighbor? All right, so you've got this, this lawyer, this expert in the law, which means he's a Bible expert is what that means. And he comes to Jesus and he asks him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
And Jesus says, well, Bible expert, you should know. What does the Bible say about that? And he does know. He says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all your strength, and with all of your mind. For the record, that's from Deuteronomy 6.5. It's a passage called the, the Shema, maybe the, the most important passage in the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible to Jews. Very important passage. But he's no Bible slouch, and he adds what he knows he should, and that is, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, bingo, you've got it right. Well done. Love your neighbor as yourself shows up everywhere in the Bible. Shows up all over the place. Uh, the first time it shows up is in Leviticus, where we find this. Don't seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And then Paul in Romans, this sweeping letter about his vision of the gospel, sums it up like this. He says, whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then James says something very similar. He says, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. You're doing right. So that shows up nearly everywhere, that phrase. And the point that keeps being made nearly every time it appears is that the whole Bible can basically be summed up like this. Love God and love your neighbor. I've got this thing with my boys where every night before bed or when I'm dropping them off at, at school, I'll say, what's the most important thing? And they say, love God, love your neighbor. Love God, love your neighbor. So I'll drop him off at school. He'll wrap his, his arms around my leg, give me a hug. I'll say, what's the most important thing? He says, love God and love your neighbor. And he walks into class and I'm thinking, I am doing pretty good at this parenting thing. <laughs> and I look down at my leg and there's a booger. That his wife there. So he doesn't quite get it yet, loving, loving your neighbor. But this Bible expert gets it, right? The most important thing is to love God and love your neighbor. Jesus says, you've answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. But he wanted to justify himself. And so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? What I'm, I want to point out something here before we jump into the question, who's my neighbor? That first statement, but he wanted to justify himself, but he wanted to make himself righteous. Now, this is a clue that what comes next is really deeply, maybe profoundly connected to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is ultimately about how God justifies us by the death, by the blood of his son, how he makes us righteous in God's eyes. And this man wants to do that for himself, which betrays he doesn't quite get the gospel. And so he asks this question, and who's my neighbor? And that's a good question, isn't it? That's the one that Jab Mesa was wondering about here. How do you know your neighbors? Who's your neighbor? It's one that I can't answer as probably as well as I should be able to. And many of us would say the same. We don't know our neighbors. But, but really, as Jesus is going to point out, it's much more expansive than who lives around us. The question is, who do I owe love to? And in reply, Jesus tells a story. And you know the story before I even read it. You see this story everywhere around you. It's how you view the world. This story is drilled into you as a young person growing up in church. If you've been in church any amount of time, you've heard this story. You just, you just think in this story's terms. In fact, yesterday I was at the bike shop 
picking up something for my bike, talking to my bike mechanic, asked him how he was doing. He said, man, I had a really hard week. I said, tell me about it. He said, Tuesday night, I was driving on Highland Street, not far from where our church used to be. So I was driving on Highland Street, and my truck broke down in the middle of the road. So I get out to work on it, and two guys pull up. And they say, hey, can we help you out? And I said, yeah, that'd be great, guys. Thanks. He said, I turned around, and the next thing I remember, I'm waking up on my back in the middle of the road. And a guy's shining a flashlight in my eyes, and he says, are you okay, man? Are you okay? I called the cops. They're on the way. Don't worry. He said, apparently, when he turned his back, they hit him in the back of the head with something, stole his wallet, left him in the middle of Highland Street. Yeah. So I say to him, man, I'm so sorry about that. And what I'm thinking is, this is the Good Samaritan story. I'm going to use this in my sermon tomorrow, right? Okay. Yeah, all of you are familiar with the Good Samaritan story. And let me remind you, the story is told in, in reply to this question, who's my neighbor? But what I want to suggest is that it's the wrong question. And what the story's doing is to try to get this Bible expert to ask the right one. Okay, so let's jump into the story here in Luke 10, verse 30. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, they beat him, they went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring an oil, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey, and he brought him to an inn, and he, he took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, and he gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Now, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert in the law replied, well, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Okay, let me, let me think for a second here, kind of philosophically. What does a story, a good story do? I think what a good story does is it invites you to imagine yourself in the position of the characters in the story. And that's what I think Jesus is doing in this story here. The story starts with, this, with Jesus inviting this man to imagine himself in the shoes of this traveler heading down the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. And that's an easy entry into the story because that's probably a trip that this expert in the law, this Bible expert, has taken many times. He knows that road really well. He knows it's a pretty dangerous road where bandits have been known to lurk. And, and then he has to imagine what it would be like traveling down that road himself if those robbers were to come upon him and attack him and leave him for dead, how, how exposed he would feel, how scared he would be, how hurt he would be. So suddenly he feels really vulnerable as Jesus is telling this story. Really vulnerable. And that... For the record, it's how a good story works. It's how it gets you. Jesus knows what he's doing. But then Jesus takes him a little bit further, and he wants him to imagine himself in the shoes of two other men, a priest and a Levite. And that's not a big leap for this guy because he's a, he's a holy religious guy, like a priest and a Levite. So these are shoes he's worn before. He's comfortable in them. 
Funny thing about it is a priest and a Levite are exactly the kind of guys who know the most important thing is to love God and love your neighbor just like him. And yet wearing their shoes, he has to watch himself walk by this guy and not help him. He begins to wonder, just because I know that the most important thing is loving God and loving your neighbor, does that mean I'm actually going to do it when the time comes? Maybe some of you have asked yourself that. So he starts, he feels vulnerable in the shoes of that man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. And I feels shame in the shoes of these religious guys walking by this guy in need. That's a good thing. He wants to repent, right? He wants to turn around. He doesn't want to be that kind of person. But good isn't what Jesus is going after. So Jesus takes the knife and he, he pushes it a little bit further, twists it a little bit more. And then he wants this guy to imagine himself in the shoes of a Samaritan. And he did not see this coming. I won't go into all the details, reasons why a, a good Samaritan and a good Jew don't get along. Let's just say they hate each other. And the reason they hate each other is religious, it's political, it's racial, it's all those things mixed into one. And he did not see this coming. He did not see himself putting on Samaritan skin. But suddenly he is. And Jesus tells him not only that a Samaritan of all people knows more about being a neighbor than him, but that he should pay attention to the example of this Samaritan and he should go and do likewise. He should go be like him. All right, pay attention here. I want you to lean in. Don't miss this. This story isn't answering the question, who's my neighbor? The story, by forcing him to imagine himself in one identity after another, until he lands in one he never saw coming and can't imagine himself wearing. The story's an invitation to an identity crisis. He starts by asking, who's my neighbor? And he walks away asking, who am I? Who am I again? And that's exactly, I think, how the gospel of Jesus Christ works. Now, if I were to ask you what parable best summarizes the gospel... You would probably say what? Prodigal son? That's this wonderful story about this bad son who takes his inheritance from his father, goes and wastes it in a wild land of wild living, and then when he's finally eating pig slop, decides he's going to come back home, but the father receives him. And I think latent in that story is this really beautiful imagery that we, we, would, we would think through the lens of Jesus on the cross, that God, by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, makes a way for us to come back home, right? He, he receives us as we come back. He embraces us. And because we think of the gospel through that lens, we tend to think about the gospel primarily as an event. It's something that happens to you. It's something God does for you. But what is the gospel doing to you over time. You know, what happens to that son after he comes back to the dad? Because frankly, he's still a pretty crummy kid when he comes back. I think you might, you might consider this question, is the Good Samaritan part two in the prodigal son story? You know, what happens to the son once God takes him back? Once God takes him back. Think about it like this. We enter the gospel like this expert in this Bible, and we've got a question. Our question is, who's my neighbor? Or our question is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Or why am I angry all the time? How do I have a happy life? How do I stop fighting with my spouse all the time? 
How do I stop hurting on the inside? Um, how do I treat people? Who should I vote for? Should we build a wall? Is this all there is when I'm seeing around me? Surely those more. Those, those are all really good questions. And I think ultimately those good questions should lead you back to the word of God. It should lead you back to, to Christ. It's just the thing is when you come with those questions to Christ, what God wants to do in addition to receiving you is to then take you and put new skin on you. You know, make you a new, a new person to change who you are fundamentally. You know, the gospel isn't static. It's not just an event that, that happened for you. It's something that's happening to you. It's got this movement to it. And when you live into the gospel story, you should be moving with the gospel story. The gospel isn't moving you from one place to another. It's moving you from one person to another. And if you were going to ask me, what does the gospel do to you? I'd tell you, well, the gospel makes you somebody else. You know, somebody you weren't before. And who does the gospel make you? Well, look at the story. It makes you the neighbor. Not the person who needs help, the person who initiates it, the neighbor. Look at the story one more time. This religious man asked Jesus what he has to do to have eternal life. Jesus confirms he needs to love God, love his neighbor, but then the man says he needs more specifics. And Jesus knows he doesn't need more specifics. He needs a new identity. He needs to become somebody that he never thought he could be. He needs to become this person that, that I can make him. And in the Bible, there's a lot of words for those questions, saved, or, or a lot of words for those kinds of people. There's, it's saved, baptized, holy, sanctified, a believer, a Christian, a child of God, a fragrant offering, a living stone, a royal priesthood. But Jesus just calls those people, you and I here, all he calls them is neighbors. He just calls you a neighbor, right? It's not fancy. You, you don't have to know the Greek, just neighbor. And not, not real complicated. Those who by God's grace have been transformed into someone they never expected are now neighbors. Thing about it is, if you are a neighbor, what does that make this, this man who's beaten on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho or on Highland Street? What does it make him to you? If you're a neighbor, it makes him, well, I guess it makes him your neighbor, right? Uh, what does it make your annoying coworker in the office if you're a neighbor? I guess it makes him your neighbor. What does it make the kid who's sitting by herself in the school cafeteria? Well, if you're a neighbor, I guess it makes him your neighbor. You know, if, if you're a neighbor, what does it make the conservative with their red hat? I guess it makes him your neighbor. If you're a neighbor, what does it make the liberal with their Toyota Prius? I guess it makes them your neighbor. Right. If you're a neighbor, what does it make the immigrant? What does it make the unborn child? What does it make the black or the white, the Asian, the Hispanic? What does it make the rich or the poor, the kind, the unkind, the sinner? Well, I guess if you're a neighbor, it makes them your neighbor, right? And what must I do? What must you do to inherit eternal life? I'll give you a clue. It's the most important thing. Love God and love your neighbor. 
In Christ, we have all been made righteous. We have been justified, which is what this guy is seeking. What that means, as Paul tells us, when we are baptized into Christ, is that God takes our skin off of us and he wraps us in Christ. And so when God the Father looks down on us now, he doesn't see our sinfulness, our frailty, our humanity. He looks at us and he sees his son, Christ. But the thing about Christ is that he left heaven above and made his dwelling among us. That is, he became our neighbor. So if I am wrapped in the skin of Christ, when people look at me, what they should see is neighbor. What they should see is neighbor. You know, if I am a, a rebel, then everyone to me is a threat. If I'm a fighter, then everyone's my enemy. If I'm a competitor, then everyone's my competition. But if I'm a neighbor, then everybody's just my neighbor. And that's what Jesus does to us. Martin Luther King Jr., he knows Martin Luther King Day this week. Martin Luther King Jr., his last sermon he ever preached here in Memphis, the night before he was assassinated, preached on the Good Samaritan story. I think the reason he preached on that is that people don't change their minds. And you can't change somebody's mind. I mean, you know, somebody posts something on Facebook and you're like, ooh, I'm going to show them. And you, you write out this big reply, right? And you're like, oh, they're going to send me a message to say, thank you for that. You really helped me understand this better. I repent in dust and ashes. You know, if you get one of those messages, let me know. I have not seen that work. People don't change their minds. But by God's grace, Jesus Christ can change their hearts. Jesus Christ can change their identity. Oh, the only hope for this world, the only hope of a world that doesn't chew each other up and spit each other out, is for God to transform our identities, to make us somebody we never saw coming. And unless God makes us into those kind of people, we are simply incapable of loving our neighbor as they deserve, as we are called to do. You know, the majesty and wonder of it all, majesty and wonder of it all, is that when we are so changed and we reach out to our neighbor in love, by the mysterious power of God, we are reaching out to God himself. You know, that in our neighbor, we see Christ. That what we do for the least of these, we do for him and that when we love our neighbor well, we are loving God himself. That's a mysterious thing. But it turns out it's the most important thing. Even my boys know that. Just watch out for boogers around them. Hey, I'm thankful you're here. And if God has not finished making you into who he wants you to be, join the club. If you'd like prayers in that regard, if you'd like Jesus Christ to continue that work of transformation in your heart, come down and we'll pray for you this morning. If you want to enter these waters of baptism and begin that process of transformation, if you want to come back to the Father who's waiting there, coming down the road to you to receive you, to start this process of transformation in your life, we'll baptize you this morning. Come on down. If you'd like prayers with some of our elders, they're in, they're in the, the back of the room. and They'd love to receive you in prayer this morning. Will you stand as we sing to our God and Father now?